Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Martin Doblmeyer. Martin, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And I'll say a few words about you, and then I'll say what brings me to invite you on the podcast. So you've been doing documentary work since 1983. You have three Emmy Awards, three honorary degrees for religion and fine arts filmmaking, and dozens of awards. And I came to you because I saw your movie Bonhoeffer, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the reason I saw it was that, uh, regular listeners know this, that I, I work on sustainability leadership, and growing up, my heroes tended to be Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Mandela. And it occurred to me as I worked on sustainability that the they represented, they came from, Gandhi was in the colony trying to get freedom from the colonizer. And they were always on the, in, they were from and represented the oppressed class. Gandhi may have been well-educated and gone to India and so forth, but he was still from the colony. And we often think of ourselves as, oh, we're going to get hit by global warming. It's going to be really bad. But we're also more on the side of we're, when we buy our airplane tickets, when we buy our SUVs, when we, oh man, around here, people seem to turn on their air conditioners in, in May and leave them on nonstop 24-7 until October. And so in many ways, we are from the oppressing class. We could stop doing these things and we don't. And so I've looked for role models of people in history who could have oppressed, could have looked the other way, and yet still acted. A big one that early I found was uh, Robert Carter III, who was a classmate of Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson, one of the great writers of freedom, but did not free his slaves. And Robert Carter III did. He freed his about 500 slaves. And another big one is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And you did a movie on Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I saw, and it was a, it was touching, it was historical, and it also put us in the mindset of the man that, well, let's get to talking about that. I wonder if, um, if you could, I, I, I'd love to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the life that he lived and the challenges he faced, but maybe it'd be best to learn a bit about you. Maybe you could give a little bit more about your background and how you came to make films, and in particular, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, well, thanks, Josh. I, I do documentary films, and they're mostly released for public television on PBS. And I like biographies. It's one of the forms that I like to, to work in, the genres that I like to work in, biographies. They're very, for me, they're very engaging, and they reveal a lot, lot bigger topics, topic areas, well beyond the the story of that one particular individual, and that's why I picked them. So I've done documentaries on Bonhoeffer, well explained in a second, but I also did a documentary uh, back in the '90s on Thomas Jefferson and this this real struggle for him about race and slavery and the new nation and everything. So these people that I pick as documentary subjects, I do so because I think they lead us into bigger, more more personal, and at the same time universal struggles. So Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, I think, one of the great religion thinkers of the 20th century, although he dies at the age of 39. So he, like Martin Luther King Jr., die at the age of 39, and yet the legacy that they live is quite they leave behind us is, is quite remarkable. Bonhoeffer was born in Germany, 1906, born into a rather well-to-do family. His father was a, a leading psychiatrist. In Germany at the time, actually uh, was a friend of the 
uh, the man who would become chancellor uh, of Adolf Hitler. And in, in the Bonhoeffer family, it was clear from 1933 on uh, that this was not going to go well for Germany. They were a conservative family, kind of a traditional Lutheran family, and yet they were politically smart enough to see what was happening throughout Ger uh, Germany at that time in 1933 and 34. So Bonhoeffer uh, decides he's going to study theology. He gets his PhD, believe it or not, he gets his doctorate degree at the age of 21. He's a smart, smart man. And even as Hitler's coming in, uh, he decides that I'm going to have to say something about this. I can't go with the masses in adulation of the new Fuhrer. And so even in 1933, he becomes one of the first public voices to speak out against Adolf Hitler. And he's paying a price for that immediately. And so he's wise enough to know that this is going to go downhill. And he becomes part of what they call the confessing church. Hitler really did rely on the support, the credibility, the credential of religion, institutional religion in Germany in the earliest years of his gaining power and name and recognition and everything. He would leave that. He would leave the churches behind by the, by the mid-30s. But he needed the church's support in the early part of the decade to get his recognition. And and Bonhoeffer really resented this. He, he was really furious about this. And Bonhoeffer and a bunch of other pastors created what they called the Confessing Church. About 30,000 pastors in Germany, and only about 7,000 of them decided, we're going to speak out against this new Fuhrer. We're going to say that the path that he's leading us on is going to be disastrous. But the majority of them stayed in the fold. They appreciated the success that they were having because they supported the Fuhrer. He was rising, they were rising, all boats rise when the tide goes up, and that was what was happening. And so Bonhoeffer finds himself in the 1930s on the wrong end of the popularity pole. And so he's sort of got to go off on the side and do his own little thing. He's writing, he's thinking about all this, and that's part of the reason why you've come on Bonhoeffer and, and millions of people have come to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because he wrote through the most one of the most horrifying chapters in human history. The 1930s and into the Second World War, Germany was a time of total breakdown of what it meant to be human, how to respect human beings, how to see the face of what they would think, see the face of God in others. Bonhoeffer's writing throughout the course of all this. So he becomes really a unique historical voice about what was happening in his country at his time in history. And I think he's, in the end, he's influenced now everybody from Barack Obama to Desmond Tutu. I interviewed Desmond Tutu for the film on Bonhoeffer, and he was clearly a Bonhoeffer fan. He had studied Bonhoeffer's life and really used Bonhoeffer as a model to say, no, we're, we're religious people in South Africa, and yet we know what's right and wrong, and apartheid is wrong, and we're going to stand and face judgment, but we're going to speak out against it. So Bonhoeffer really, even though he dies young, he's captured by the Germans for his attempts to get involved in the plots to kill Adolf Hitler, him and his family, Bonhoeffer's family, engaged in the plots to kill Adolf Hitler. That's the reason why in 1943 he's arrested, put in jail. He spends the last two years of his life in jail. He's, he's killed, he's executed weeks before the end of the war. And it's just a terrible waste of a great life. But he dies at the age of 39. He's executed right before the end of the war. And yet he leaves this body of writings that I think still will, I think will impact people for generations to come.
Now you've given a lot of the story or the the what happened, the play by play. I'm curious about how much you got into his heart and mind and the resistance that he faced from all different areas. I want to get to that, but actually there's one piece also as an American, as a New Yorker, I know that New York played a, a big role in his life as well. And I wonder if you could put that in too. Yeah, man. Well, he, that's, that's true. He, um, 1930. So really before all this with uh, Adolf Hitler really starts, he comes to New York. Uh, he comes over on a teaching fellowship. So he's just finished his graduate studies at a very young age, and he gets a teaching fellowship to come over to New York to teach at Union Theological Seminary on the Upper West Side of New York. And uh, this is a place where people are beginning to put religion and social justice together, for the really for the first generation. They're in, influenced by people like Walter Rauschenbusch and people like that, and and this is a place that's attracting really different kinds of professors to instill in the new the new generation of pastors and ministers and things like that this notion of social consciousness, social awareness. And one of the professors for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he comes to Union Theological Seminary, is Reinhold Niebuhr, who would go on to become really, I think, the great public theologian in America in the in the 20th century. So he spends Bonhoeffer spends a couple of years here in this country. And in addition to being schooled by people like Reinhold Niebuhr, while he's up at Union Theological Seminary, Bonhoeffer, as you would almost imagine, decides that he's going to spend his weekends over at in Harlem, uh, particularly in Harlem uh, at Abyssinian Baptist Church. So Bonhoeffer's, you know, he's a white guy, young white guy, but he is absolutely enthralled by the kind of religion, this full body expression of religion that he sees happening at, Union, at uh, Abyssinian Baptist Church. He's just taken by it. Nothing goes like this is going on in Germany. His education was very rigid, very studied, very strict and stiff, if you want to say. But Bonhoeffer decides that this kind of expression of God and the transformation of the community of Harlem by these churches was something that he was very attracted to. And preaching at Abyssinian Baptist Church is Adam Clayton Powell Sr., who is remembered as one of the great orators in American church history. So he's influenced by Adam Clayton Powell Sr., the influence by the way the church is connecting the notion of tradition, gospel, and social justice, the transformation of the people in your presence and that are in your, in your sphere of being able to be influenced and helped. And then he goes back to Germany then after those few years in New York, and he brings all of that with him back to Germany. And that's really the beginning, I think, of his his decision to form a sense of resistance to what uh, Adolf Hitler was doing. And thanks for sharing that part too. And I think we'll get back to his other time in America in a second. But when he was in the the struggles that, I, mean, I feel like, all right, you said 9,000 out of 30,000 clergymen participated in the Confessing Church. So he's facing over what is probably overwhelming resistance. I mean, it must be easy to go with the flow. He could just watch it happen. And why not? And I mean, Hitler hadn't been Hitler yet. And before we recorded, I started reading to you the opening lines of, of your movie. Those are his words, right? Yes, yes. Those are his words. And, and uh, I'll put a little context to them. Uh, if you Do you want to read? Oh, I thought I'd let you do it this time because you were finishing my sentence. And uh. <laughs> oh, I said also, 
do you think it would be a bad idea if we said, if anyone is interested, they could pause this recording if they're listening to us and watch your movie? Because I'll put a link to it. It's on YouTube. And would you mind if they paused and like went to the movie and then came back to us? No, no, no. I mean, I think it would be, uh, you know, if they've been intrigued by what we've said so far and they want to go and see a little bit more about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm delighted. Yeah, it's really time very well spent. So, yeah, could you say the opening lines and then... Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll read the lines first and then I'll give you a little backstory and why I think I wanted to use these lines as the very opening of my film. So Bonhoeffer, it's Christmas, 1942. And uh, Bonhoeffer writes the words, We have been silent witnesses of evil deeds. We have learned the art of equivocation and pretense. Experience has made us suspicious of others and kept us from being truthful and open. Are we still of any use? It's a little abbreviated. It was a longer paragraph. But what this is in 19... This is the Christmas moment in 1942. Bonhoeffer has just spent months and months now secretly as part of the resistance movement to try and kill Adolf Hitler as the last resort to try and end the madness that brought about the Holocaust and World War II as a pastor, as a Christian, as someone who was inclined to to Gandhi and pacifism. He gave all of that up and decided, I'm going to become part of my brother-in-law's movement to try and assassinate the head of state in Germany, Adolf Hitler. And he feels corrupted by all of this. He feels as though he betrayed his values, but it's the only recourse he feels is left. And that's why he says we've been silent witnesses. We let all of this in Germany happen. We let this happen in our country. We let us get to a point where the only recourse now is to assassinate the head of state and hope to God, literally hope to God, that the madness that was World War II, the the, the Holocaust, all of this can maybe come to an end now. And sadly, Bonhoeffer is a great and brilliant writer. The team of assassins were not particularly good assassins. And they made several attempts to kill Adolf Hitler. That They were never successful. And even though he writes this in Christmas of 42, saddened by all of this, in the next three months, uh, he'll be arrested for his, his role in the assassination plots. He will spend the next couple of years in jail in prison, and then he will be assassinated just weeks before the end of the war. So so in some ways, his life is tragically failed in terms of being able to succeed at killing Hitler. But the the way he approached the duty, his moral sense of conscience about what you have, to, how you have to live your life, I think will stay with us forever. And do you have a sense of what that turmoil was like? I mean, you didn't mention, one of the things that, I think in the movie you mentioned Sermon on the Mount, and to kill someone seems pretty opposite to that. And there was a question that he asked one of his people in the confessing church. I didn't write the text down, but he said, can you absolve, can you, someone who, he was struggling, I think he was struggling with, if I'm going to do the absolute worst thing I could do, but it's still better than that struggle. And you must have peered into it. Yeah, I think that's part of what we wanted to do. I mean, a good documentary film, in my opinion, is somewhere that brings you into the tensions, sort of the, the, the struggles that are going on inside of us. And Bonhoeffer really lived that out. Bonhoeffer is brilliant. You know, he's, he's recognized as brilliant by his peers right from the get-go. 
Uh, and yet at the same time, he's very young when all this happens. Again, he was born in 1906. And so, so uh, you know, in 1933, when Hitler is just starting to take take over, Bonhoeffer's in his 20s. And the people that are, the, the church, the people that he looked up to and respected and read and honored are all lining up behind Adolf Hitler. They do that. There's, I mean, there's historical context to all of this. I mean, the church stood behind the sense of God and country for World War One, And when World War One turned out to be a total disaster for the Germans, the German church took a lot of the brunt of the anger and frustration and the disappointment that the German people had, the humiliation that the German people had. And so, you know, that's really, Hitler was smart enough to play on that in the 1920s as he's rising up. We're not a people that are to be humiliated. We are a strong and glorious and noble people. And God is God will be with us the next time, is kind of the argument in short that, that Hitler was playing on. And Bonhoeffer was basically saying, no, this is not the way it's going to go. And speaking out, he becomes one of the few voices that says, no, we can't, we can't be doing this. We can't misunderstand our mission, despite the fact that we feel a disappointment for what happened in World War I. So he does have the courage to say, you know, we're not, we're not going to get in line here. In, in the, you know, 1937, 38, Hitler's raising up the churches. Churches are raising up Hitler. Everybody seems to be moving forward positively. You know, I mean, he had programs in place, Hitler, that, that started to put the country back to work. He's building highways. I mean, they, be, they created Volkswagen and there's enterprise and industry and the country's really growing. And yet, I think so. I think it took a particular amount of courage for Bonhoeffer to say, "No, you know, this is this is the foundationally wrong what we're doing here," because every step of the way he was doing this, Hitler was doing this, and he at the same time, he's also identifying Jews as the scapegoat in all of this. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer does, and I think he takes a lot of criticism within his Christian companionship, his his Christian peers, is that he's speaking out on behalf of the Jews. And I think that cost him a lot, and yet at the same time, it puts him on the right side of history when we go back to look at this. He tells his Christian pastors, if you raise yourself up at the expense of your Jewish brothers and sisters, you've done the wrong thing. And he does. He speaks out in, on behalf of his Jewish friends, and he pays a price for it. The reason I ask about that internal struggle and conflict and how it looked for him from his perspective is that today I hear a lot of people saying what I do doesn't matter. I hear a lot of people saying governments and corporations are the only ones that can make a difference on the scale that we need. I have faith that someone else, the next generation will take care of things. I have faith that someone smarter than me will figure things out. If I do something it's huge for me, but divided by 8 billion, it doesn't do anything for the world. And we want growth. Look at all the stuff that progress is bringing us. Sure, there's a bit of pollution here and there, but I don't want to give that up. No one wants to give that up. And I think the temptation to feel that way must have been strong for Bonhoeffer because he must have been surrounded by people feeling something comparable. You were talking about the growth that Hitler's bringing about and the restoration of pride and things like that. And and who could do anything about against the onslaught? I mean, we see the images of him. That's like the, the next images. I guess the opening scene, uh, opening image of your movie is a book burning. But soon after is the huge crowds with the Sig Heils and the, they didn't, I don't think people felt like 
there's a lot of anti-Semitism. I don't know if they anticipated how many people ex- anticipated something like the Holocaust. I mean, they certainly didn't see the Nazis in 1935, 1937, 1939 that we do today. And so tempting, so easy to buy into what's going on around me. Well, I think that no, that's a good point. I, I think that uh, it's really tempting to not find the comfort and the security the way the, the way the crowd is going, but there's always there's always a great temptation. You know, the prophet is never recognized in their own country, and the truth of the matter is that's as clear as a bell with the with the life and the legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It takes enormous amount of courage to stand up and say, "I I know the majority of you are going in this direction. I think it's wrong." Uh, whether it's about how we care for the environment or whether or not it's the rise of a political party. And I think Bonhoeffer is one of the great examples of the courage it takes to do something about that. And you can say, well, in, in the end, Bonhoeffer failed. I mean, he he becomes part of the resistance movement. He he and his brother-in-law, Hans Vandenani, and the group of people who tried to commit an, you know, a capital crime of killing the head of state, Adolf Hitler, they failed. They ultimately couldn't do it. And yet at the same time, history remembers the fact that Bonhoeffer was on the right side of an issue that we will always look back and say, why didn't they stand up and say something? Why did they wind up being silent? So many wind up being silent witnesses of evil deeds. And that's that's the problem. I mean, they always talk about if you don't know your history, you're always destined to repeat that history. And I think sadly that happens way too often. I, I think we all have to have to realize that we're individually called to do the thing that we believe in our heart of hearts is right. We have to have a moral compass that gets us to where we think we can actually live with ourselves. The question that can't be resolved is as many people as got behind Adolf Hitler in the 1930s and loved the celebrations that were happening, the the sense of reviving the German culture, reviving the German nation, how many of them deep down inside felt, yeah, this is this really may be going in the wrong, it may be going sideways here soon, but I'm, I'm going to enjoy the party in the meantime. No one will ever know that. But we do know is that it went sideways and it cost the lives of tens of millions of people. And history looks back at that as one of the darkest times in Western civilization. And Bonhoeffer is right in the middle of the storm saying, no, 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 don't go. You mentioned some of the questions being, how could those things happen? And that's an interesting historical question. A big question for me is, what can I learn from Dietrich Bonhoeffer to continue his legacy today is one way of thinking it. But is it too crazy for me to think I would like to implement today? I would like to be not exactly Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but to be today what what he would have been today, I think. I mean- I got to throw out here because it's it's dangerous to compare one's something one's working on with the Holocaust or the Nazis. But one number that I often cite is from the Lancet, a peer-reviewed journal of medicine that says that every year for the past, since 2015, 9 million people have died from breathing polluted air. That's every year. And that's not people working in factories. That's just people just breathing polluted air. And that number is expected to increase if we don't change our course. It's And it's entirely preventable. We're just letting it happen. And we can all say, well, yeah, but my emissions aren't, you know, it's just one part in eight billion. It's, not, it's nothing. 
But Hitler didn't reach those numbers. I mean, it, that's annual every year since 2015. And it's going to be greater. So I don't want to say polluting is the same as being a Nazi, but also being a taxpaying German who wasn't a Nazi is also not being a Nazi. And yet they saw it happen. Well, well, no, I understand what you're thinking about. And I think the parallel really is being, you know, uh, hindsight, hindsight is 100% accurate. You always look back and see what happens after it happens. And so are we creating a path for ourselves in, in terms of, of the environment and the way that we treat the world that's been given to us in such a way that in the end we'll look back and say, how could we not see this coming? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does it mean that we have to make sacrifices to make some change? Absolutely. Are we willing to make that? Not so sure. Are we willing to make the, you know, in the 1930s, if you want to make the parallel, in the 1930s when when the Germany is kind of on a roll, it's on, on an upward roll in the 1930s. Things are back in motion again. People are working and they're building highways and industry is flying. And everybody wa doesn't want it. Nobody wants to interrupt that. Nobody wants to interrupt that. And everybody fundamentally wants to enjoy and profit uh, from the possibilities of what's been created. And I think what, what you're talking about, Josh, is the, the need to be able to say, no, look, I am willing to make a sacrifice now. I'm willing to turn a page and say that not only for myself presently, but also for future generations, we're going to have to make some serious choices, and they're going to hurt for a while, but in the long run, it's the right thing to do. Now, that's not a particularly popular message. You know, politicians will hit the road in 2024 and talk about what they feel as though are the paths to getting America right again. And they'll be very reluctant, Josh, to use any kind of language that says, we'll need to sacrifice here. We'll need to sort of deny ourselves some stuff that we haven't been denying ourselves in order to preserve life as we'd like to have it for our children in the future. That is not a particularly popular message. Uh, and it, it's not the pathway to get yourself elected. And so I think everybody who's running for an office in 2024, whether it's federally or even locally, you'll try and figure out a balance. The word sacrifice is not is not the way to get yourself votes in this country. People don't want to think like that. And so it takes a lot of courage to turn and to go in the other direction and say, no, this, this is something that really has to be done. Um, we feel as though our moral compass tells us this is the direction we have to go in. Well, now here I have to talk about, I don't know if you've looked up my background of what I've been doing on sustainability, that there's personal action is not the same as systemic change, but I believe that you cannot, how do I put it now? Uh, if you want to cross the finish line of the marathon of systemic, of changing systems, you must first cross the starting line of changing yourself. Yeah. So it's necessary. It doesn't get the job done, but but you have otherwise you don't you aren't in the race. You don't know what you're talking about. So for people who don't know, I'm I'm my apartment has been off the grid in Manhattan for a year and a half now, and I dropped ninety percent of my impact in a two and a half year period. I haven't filled up a load of garbage since twenty nineteen. I know that before I did any of these things. I all those things I said before of like what I do doesn't matter things like and all those things I said before I felt those things I felt like if I don't fly I haven't flown since 2016 if I don't fly my family's going to disown me I'm going to lose my apartment because I'm not going to be able to pay my bills when I actually did these things 
I expected each time that I thought I was sacrificing. I thought I was taking one for the team. A short period into each one, I overcame, I, there was a withdrawal period, generally shorter than I expected. On the far side of it, I got more of what I was looking for in life, not less. It looks like sacrifice, but it's not. And another big, a big direction of research for me, one is into addiction, because it tends to be the case when people are addicted, they feel like, I don't want to give up the thing that I have, because if I'm not taking heroin, I'm not going to get the joy and love and peaceful feeling that it gives me or whatever, that euphoria. But when you're addicted to something, it gives you these jolts of things, but you actually have net less of that thing overall in your life. That was the case for me. I felt I had more adventure through flying, but actually I had a jolt of feeling that feeling, but I've actually more adventure now. Like I was with my closeness with my family, my control over my finances. With Without buying packaged food, I have more deliciousness in my life. So it does look like sacrifice, but I'm never going back. One of the, the other big line of research is in anthropology and in history that over and over again, cultures that we would now call indigenous resist. The indigenous cultures that remain today, I learned growing up, we have to teach them so that they can be like us and not suffer so much their horrible lives. But they don't look at us. They look at us and they're not ignorant. They're not stupid. They, don't, they know about our medicine and our airplanes and things like that. And they don't choose to be like us because, and I can't speak for them, but my understanding is that they generally look at us and we, they see in us less freedom, less equality, less mutual support that they have. Mm. And the steps that I'm taking, I feel like I'm, I live within Manhattan. I'm in American and New York culture, but I'm in many ways in a different culture. And I do not want to return to the parts where I'm dependent and addicted on these things, these technologies that are supposed to improve our lives and give us these jolts. But Overall, I can see why, you know, in the American colonies, you might know this, that there are some colonists who lived among the Indians, and there are some Indians who lived among the colonists and even went to Europe. And my understanding is that many colonists who lived among the Indians stayed, but there's no known case of Indians who lived among the Europeans who stayed. It was a one-way flow. And that if you only know our culture, the other cultures look like they're deprived. But if you know, I believe that in head-to-head competition, people tend to, if someone really knows their culture and really knows our culture, they choose that one more. I don't want to, you know, I'm not saying noble savage. I'm not, I'm not trying to paint any overly rosy pictures, but just that I'm trying to show that I'm not the only person in history who has had a taste of the direction where I'm looking and said, oh, it, that sure did look like a sacrifice. And it sure isn't. You know, well, first of all, um, you're not alone. I think what's really been just fascinating to watch for me uh, is the growth of the ecologically focused movement in this country in the last generation. I think if you talk to young people on college campuses, and I spent a lot of time speaking and showing my films and talking about the subject matters of my films on college campuses, I think if there's one issue that galvanizes young people today. It's the environment and how we're going to take care of this this earth because they feel as though the previous generations have taken from it 
and it's going to be time for a reckoning. So you are, you are not alone. Now, I will say there rare are the people that will go to the extreme that you are have got, which is not flying anymore. And so that's a big leap, and I admire you. I, yes, I did do my research before I came onto the podcast, and I really admire what it is. We need voices like this in our culture that show us that this is going to be not just painful, but once you start to get into the rhythm of it, it's not painful at all, and you recognize the benefits from it, and you actually feel better as a result of having done it. So I, I think the other thing that I, that's clear to me, too, is that whether or not I – know, I know you're, you don't practice a particular faith tradition – but I can tell you that going back a generation ago, the faith traditions were rather um, were rather disinterested in the ecological movement, the care of the earth movement in this country. And that has changed dramatically. Jews, Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, they all have offices, studies that they're gathering, movements that they're creating within their constituency for connecting to dire need to get our the earth that God, and they would say that God has given us, to take the earth that God has given us and get it to the shape that God expects. Now, I think, despite the fact that they take it from a religious, God created the world and we're responsible for it, despite the fact that they take it from a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective, that they can be wonderful allies because they have networks, they have organizations, and they fundamentally have a moral creed that calls them to say, look, we have to be more realistic about the insustainability of the world that we are currently living in, and let's get this thing right. And so I think it's a new awakening. It's a new moment, I think, in this, in this country, this generation. is gonna, It's going to be altogether different in the years ahead because I think this current young generation, the Gen Zs, are enlightened about this issue. I think it's going forward rather than behind. I see young people too. A big thing for me is that old people still, I mean, a lot of young people, they're not old enough to vote. They don't own shares in companies. They're not CEOs. They don't hold elected office. And so for me, I really want to focus on the old people, especially the ones with the most influence and power, because well, I hope the reasons are obvious. What can we, and also for religion, what can we learn? What can I learn from Dietrich Bonhoeffer? What would he do today, do you think? Is that too speculative a question? Well, there's there's not, I would say it's, it's um, at least in my own studies of Bonhoeffer, there's nothing that literally connects to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the, and the sustainability movement that we've been talking about. But I, there's no question in my mind uh, that Bonhoeffer is willing to make the tough choices when it comes to doing what he believes is right. And I can't imagine Bonhoeffer uh, being on the side of giant corporations that use and abuse and then dismiss uh, the environment and leave it scarred forever. I just can't imagine that. And I, I can't imagine that Bonhoeffer would not be one of the people out in front of this. I just, I just see him weaving the notion of God's earth and it is having been created by God as a space for us to use, but never to abuse, I think he'd be all over this. And I, and I think most of the people, despite the fact that they were fighting different wars, you know, you were saying that one uh, uh, your heroes were Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Bonhoeffer really admired Gandhi; that he was the mo- he was one of the models for him. In fact, 
one of the life-changing decisions, life-altering decisions for Bonhoeffer was in nineteen in the mid-1930s when he was Bonhoeffer was furious about what was happening in Germany. He had been it had been arranged for him to be in written communication with Mahatma Gandhi. And Gandhi was inviting Bonhoeffer to come to India to spend some time to learn about nonviolence and, and how to live your life on that kind of a, a moral path. Bonhoeffer waited, decided not to go and stayed in Germany, but he was in contact with Gandhi. Later on down the line, Martin Luther King Jr., influenced, deeply influenced, of course, by Gandhi, who he never met, but he, he was influenced by Gandhi, and he was influenced by Bonhoeffer. So all these people that you admire, they're all kind of, they're inter, they are interwoven out of their, the direction is, their moral compass is sending them down the same path. And, and I think as you follow them, and you read them, and you think about them, and, and use their language, and the models of their, their ideas, you're following the same path too. So I, I applaud you for that. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm barely getting started. And it occurs to me that also they were all reacting to something similar of a couple centuries of imperialism and colonialism and slavery that were building up to that the world hadn't seen on that in that way on that scale before with that level of cruelty before. I mean, these things existed before imperialism, colonialism, and slavery. But yeah, the world had changed and. So it, yeah, it's it's so few people. I mean, the world they were not alone, but so few people responded. There was a scene in the movie where his his friend I've actually never said that out loud. Beka, Beka. Yep, his name is Emmerhart Beka. Yes, and he said Dietrich was struggling, and he and he Beka looks at the camera and he goes, "Maybe you know the quote better than me." It was, "We're not living in the future. We're not living in the past. We have to solve." Our problems today. Do you remember the, what he said? Yeah, no, you're living now. I mean, the, the the question becomes as ridiculous as it may even sound to some people today. These were Germans who are trying to decide, do we have the moral support to go and kill the head of state? Anybody who knows the German culture knows that it's really respectful, reverential of order and authority. And the very notion of killing the head of state disturbed them so much, despite the fact that it's Adolf Hitler. They were really struggling with this. And in some ways, Bonhoeffer becomes uh, helpful in them creating a new moral compass, a new moral compass that says, it's okay, we're doing the right thing. It's the lesser of, of evils to go and change, change leadership in this country. And Bonhoeffer was very helpful in letting them feel a sense of peace about what they're doing. I mean, it's it's just it's just this internal struggle that they're going through, which in some ways may sound ridiculous to some of us. Well, just go kill him. He was crazy. Hitler was nuts. He caused so much pain and suffering. Just go kill him. These people wondered whether or not they were on the right path to do this. And of course, they chose to go ahead and stay the course and do it. It was it's a really interesting story. I had I obviously I never met Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He dies in 1945, before years before I'm born. But I did get to meet and come to know as a friend, Bonhoeffer's best friend, Eberhard Beitka. They went to seminary together. They were in the seminary together. This was the man that Bonhoeffer would often share his early thinkings. He would sort of mature his theological ideas in partnership with a number of people, including Eberhard Beitko. And 
Bonhoeffer dies during the Second World War. Eberhard Beitka, his good friend, survives. Uh, he actually was in prison in, in Italy for a little while, was released, and got back, got back home. But we should all... Bon, Beitka then commits his life to raising up the storyline of his good friend, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I can tell you now with absolute certainty, you would never have heard of this young pastor, aspiring pastor, writer, thinker, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, had it not been for Eberhard Beitka, who was absolutely vigilant in making sure that his good friend, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was continued to be thought about, reflected on, put into all the new changes of social dramas and political tensions that were happening all throughout the late 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. I spent a lot of time with Eberhard, and, and he was always open, always willing and available uh, to theological students and seminary students, political writers, anybody who wanted to infuse Bonhoeffer into their doctoral dissertation or to use him in a particular paper or to, to launch a particular th theory. Eberhard Baker made himself available at all times to help that student interpret Bonhoeffer for that particular moment. And theology in particular has undergone a lot of changes in the last, you know, 70 years since Bonhoeffer left. You know, liberation theology, womenist theology, gender theology, all of this, always calling Bonhoeffer into the conversation. Eberhard Bitke was always there. And I admired him so much. He was a gentleman, very thoughtful man, smart, smart man. And so they say that you can get, you can know a person simply by the friendships that they keep. And if that's true, I think Bonhoeffer himself must have been a remarkably kind, thoughtful, brilliant character. They were friends, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer participated in, in a plot to kill Hitler. Was Eberhard part of that? Was he privy to it? Was he, uh, to what extent was Bonhoeffer, were they just friends? Were they collaborators? Did Bonhoeffer lead Beitka, and did he go the other way as well? Well, okay, so on a practical level, um, Eberhard Baker was conscripted into the army. He's conscripted into the army, as were many of Bonhoeffer's students. Uh, one of the sad realities is that uh, Bonhoeffer had, it was, he was given a seminary, a way to teach the next generation of, of uh, seminarians that would be coming up in the 1930s. And that's where they really bonded, Eberhard Beitka, his friend, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the teaching of the new generation of students, of, of ministers. But by the time the war broke out in, the in 1939, that seminary, which was a rebel seminary, if you will, it was a confessing church seminary that was in resistance to Adolf Hitler, the way the Germans got rid of those, those seminarians, put them on the front lines. Let's get all these young, sort of rebellious know-it-alls Put them in uniform, send them to the front lines. And so tragically, a lot of the young seminarians that Bonhoeffer and Beitka were training wound up in the service and were killed. Beitka was put into the army. He was conscripted into the army, and he went off and wound up fighting most of his time in the, in the 40s in Italy. He was wounded. I think he was, he was wounded in Italy somewhere. I can't quite remember where. But he was he was able to come to visit his buddy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even after Bonhoeffer was arrested in 1943 and put into a prison in Berlin. So they, they visited regularly because Bonhoeffer wrote articles, he wrote materials and smuggled them to his friend Eberhard Beitka 
in the prison system, uh, Baitka would come and visit him. But Baitka was in his own, he, he was not part of the, to answer your, problem, uh, your question, so a lot of the last years of the resistance movement, Bonhoeffer's in prison, and Eberhard Baitka is often in, in service in the German army off in Italy. And so they connected to each other. They came to visit each other. They didn't have cell phones or laptops or anything in those days. They had to come and visit. And they, and they wouldn't because they wouldn't, uh, it would have been dangerous. It would have been a would have been conspiratorial for them to sort of convey publicly in any way their, their thinkings and what they're doing. But they would meet in prison, talk, share ideas. Bonhoeffer would smuggle papers to Eberhard Beitke, who would take them back. And that's why a lot of the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer survive, because of his good, lifelong friend, Eberhard Baker. Well, yeah, I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as much as, not as much as I can, but to to look at the world that way, or try to imagine. And all right, one other question that I want to preface with, even if someone does look at acting on sustainability, on sustainability leadership as sacrifice. And again, it's not, if, in my experience and experience of the people who go through my workshops, after you get through the withdrawal, it's not. But even if it did, these are sacrifices that it seems to me are, you know, it's not, we're not plotting, there's no need to plot to kill anyone. It's much more of things like eating local fresh fruits and vegetables and vacationing near your home instead of flying all around the world and not buying so much fast fashion. And that's personal stuff. I mean, if one wants to take a leadership role, then there's much more about playing leadership roles. So with this context, that it's the, Bonhoeffer was killed by the Germans. He was home free. He was in the United States. And he got the last boat back. This seems like no one was trying to get into Nazi Germany can you tell more about that experience? Yeah, I, thanks. I mentioned earlier in our conversation that Bonhoeffer came over to New York City on a teaching fellowship. He was here in 1930, 31, and then goes back to Germany just as Adolf Hitler is beginning to rise. By 1939, Hitler's already taken control of the army. Uh, they've already done some sweeping into different parts of Europe. It's pretty clear the direction everything is going, and Bonhoeffer has already been identified by the Nazis, by the German leadership, as problematic. He's run this seminary where he's teaching, the Confessing Church Seminary, where he's teaching the next generation of ministers about you know how, how, to, how, to, how to behave in this kind of political and social environment. So he's already on the short list for someone who should be going to jail. Bonhoeffer leaves Germany, 1939, and he returns to New York. And he's here only for six weeks. It's If you read his letters, even on the boat coming over to the United States in 1939, he's already having second thoughts. And when he gets to the United States in 1939, he meets with his, his former professor, Reinhold Niebuhr, and his other friends that he had made while he was here, and just comes to the conclusion he can't take safety first. He has to stand by the people that he cares about and loves. And so, as you mentioned, he takes the last known boat traveling transatlantic uh, back to Germany before the beginning, uh, before September of 1939, when the war actually begins. So it's it's almost as if it's scripted like a, a great novel, but Bonhoeffer winds up going back to Germany, and for the next few years, he will work secretly 
as part of the conspiracy to kill Adolf Hitler. It's a really difficult challenge for him to be able to do this. But he winds up he winds up effectively being the moral compass for the resistors, for those people who are actually plotting the 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 killing of the head of state. And they, like we said earlier, they're all really struggling with this. Can we do this? Should we do this? Why do we do this? But also, too, then on a practical level, there had to be plans for what would happen if they could execute Adolf Hitler. And that those things were underway. And so uh, Bonhoeffer, because of his religion work, because he was so well connected with other religious leaders, even at his young age, he's connecting to the religious leaders in different parts of Europe, England and uh, Sweden and, and places like that. So he's he comes into an organization called the Abwehr, which is the military intelligence. It's through his brother-in-law, Hans von Danani. Von Danani is a famous name in music, becomes a famous name in music, great, great musician family. And Hans von Danani runs this group called the Abwehr. They are, they are military intelligence, sort of directly under, under Hitler. And Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law, Hans von Danani, orchestrates it. So they're going to use that as the cell of resistance. That's the cell where the plots are going to be done to kill Adolf Hitler. And he brings his brother-in-law, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, into that cell and gets him authorization, paperwork, so that Bonhoeffer now, even during the war, is able to travel to other places. He even gets to go to England. He even gets to go to Sweden and these different places. And when he goes, the idea is that he's supposed to be gathering intelligence for the Germans. But in fact, what he's doing is he's sharing with the people there in Sweden and England and places like that what it is the resistance is planning on doing in terms of killing Adolf Hitler and the kind of government that they want to set up immediately afterwards. So Bonhoeffer is living these last couple of years of his life in sort of this dual role. I think it's very difficult for him and very challenging. You know, how do you maintain a moral compass doing that kind of work? But that's, that was his role in the resistance in those, in those last couple of years. So when he was going to the U.S., he was already feeling maybe I shouldn't, like safety, very tempting from a certain perspective. Of course, that's the easy, from some perspective, that's the right choice. I could still fight from the outside, but he was losing sleep over it. So the, the he had to find the, I guess he, it sounds like he knew what was right and he had to find the right way to, to express it. And I think the real thing that is interesting to me, it's fascinating about uh, the Bonhoeffer story, is that he didn't, he's not that kind of self-righteous, I knew from the outset what's right and what's wrong. I mean, he's the kind of person that is smart enough to sort of weigh the moral dilemma with each one of these grand sweeping challenges that's presented to him. So he, you, you feel, that's part of what I, I was re- attracted to as a filmmaker, I feel the sense of struggle that's going on with inside Bonhoeffer, but eventually he wants to come down on the on what he believes will be the right side of history. And so it's not a it's not a conviction right from the get-go. He weighs thoughtfully, resourcefully all the different the ba- the balance of what these decisions will all all mean. I, I think that's true for everything, don't you? I mean, Josh, I mean, ultimately, if you come to an immediate decision like that, you haven't really thought about it particularly long. And I think Bonhoeffer did. I think he tried to balance what his belief in God was, what his belief in humanity was, human behavior, the quest for power, what was really happening, the evidence that was happening, 
And, you know, what's interesting about Bonhoeffer is he's in a particularly unique position. I mentioned this man, Hans von Denani, who was in charge of the Abwehr, the um, the uh, German military intelligence. Because of Hans von Denani, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had access to information of the atrocities that were happening in Germany and then in the occupying countries far earlier than the media did, far earlier than anybody else did. Bonhoeffer knew about the setup of Dachau in 1933. He knew about that. Uh, he knew because of Hans Vandenadi's brother-in-law about the way these camps were being set up, of what was being actually done in the countries that the Germans had begun to occupy, the atrocities that were happening to the citizenry there. He knew all that. And so that every single day he's facing that, every single day he's beginning to realize this is getting imperative. It's not just a case of, well, will I make a decision or not? You better move. You better do make a decision. Lives are depending on this. And Bonhoeffer weighed that, and he made his decision. I think today, people aren't choosing... I don't think there's anyone out there who's like, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pour some gasoline in the Hudson River. I'm going to pollute for polluting sake. I think no one's choosing to do wrong what they believe is wrong. I, I'm not, I don't pretend to know what's right and wrong, but people know for themselves what they believe is right or wrong for themselves. I think people know that they, they're choosing to do things that maybe they're getting some benefit from it, but they also know that someone's being hurt by it. And I think that it's not that they're choosing something wrong, but that they're procrastinating. Yeah, I think, you know, I, that's a good point. I think I think it would be unfair, it would be judgmental to think that there are people, that even a few people, I don't think many people at all are choosing to do corrupt things that have long, long-range damage to what the world that we we live in. I just think that, by and large, people are siloed. They live in their own worlds. They have created their systems. Interrupting those systems is damaging, is is disruptive. It, you just don't want to do that. I mean, every Christmas, you, every holiday, you get on a plane and you go, go see grandma. You go, you get on a plane and you go and see where, you, where your child is going to college. You just kind of do that. This is the systems that we've created. We've been told that it's okay. <laughs> As of today, it's a little less safe to get on an airplane. We're all learning that today. But the truth of the matter is most of us have created our systems. This is the way we, we are going to live. And changing that is really hard. But I think what you're doing, the work that you're doing, is raising an awareness that there is a different way. And it, it doesn't need to be thought of as a sacrifice. You know, that line says, you know, if you love what you do, you won't work a day in your life. Little simple, little naive in some ways. But but the truth of the matter is it does kind of speak to the fact that what you're speaking about, which is that once you begin to make these changes to your life, you don't think of it as sacrificing and really suffering. You actually feel as though this is the right path. Why didn't I start this path before? Exactly. Yeah. I could would love to go on for a long time. I want to wrap with you you mentioned your attraction to Bonhoeffer, and I forget if I asked you or what brought you to learn about him and, and do the movie, because, I mean, doing a movie is not a small undertaking, and to have the sensitivity, to treat him with the depth and, and sensitivity that you did to, implies to me a lot of preparation. And I'm also curious, the reception that it's had, I, I believe it was 2003, so it's been almost a quarter century. I mean, I guess 20 years. Do you mind sharing what what brought you to him and yeah. how the reception, what the reception has been? I was introduced to the work, the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in high school. 
And my teacher walked in one day, I'll never forget it. My teacher walked in one day and held up Bonhoeffer's book. It's called Letters and Papers from Prison. And he said, I was in a, in a boys' school. And he, Gentlemen, we're going to start learning about one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century. You've probably never heard of him before. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he assigned chapters that were really the letters that Bonhoeffer wrote, many of them to the man that we mentioned before, Eberhard Betke, who was his theological sparring partner for the last couple of years of his life. And to his fam- Bonhoeffer wrote to his family, all these letters being smuggled out, literally smuggled out of the prison. I was so moved by this, Josh. I, I just, I mean, maybe it just hit me at the right moment in my life, but I used to carry, I used to carry bon- the Bonhoeffer letter and papers from prison book with me. I was playing Little League Baseball at the time, and I'd play baseball, and I'd sit in the dugout, and I'd read a, I'd read a chapter of the Bonhoeffer bu- book while it was, before it was the next time for me to get up and bat. That's how sort of taken by all of this I was. So, uh, you know, a suggestion on my part is, in terms of your movement and what you're doing, get them while they're young. You make sure that uh, programs to young people that are looking for how they are shaping their moral compass to live the rest of their lives, those are the moments. By the time they're already in college, it's already begun to be shaped. But people in high school are really thinking about, gee, what am I going to be doing with the rest of my life? How am I going to do this? What do I take from my parents' example, what what am I leaving behind for my parents' example? And this is a really in, incredibly potent period of time in life. And this is when I came across Bonhoeffer, and it stayed with me. I, I never forgot it. And how about the reception of the movie in the past twenty years? Well, I think that I think I will say on a professional level, in some ways, it changed the trajectory of my professional career because it was so well received. I mean, I literally went out the year that it was released in 2003 and did a hundred dates around the country where I would show the film and then talk about the film, talk about Bonhoeffer, engage audiences. We had thousands of people that came out over the course of the next couple of years. I went on and did more. I've done more films. I've now done you know more than 30 films. I think the Bonhoeffer film was number 12 or so. And I guess in some ways, one of the things I'm asking myself was, how did I do 12 films? Because he meant so much to me. How did I do 12 films before I ever got around to doing the film on on Dietrich Bonhoeffer? But the answer is that I had told people I wanted to do a film on Bonhoeffer. And I had said that for a long time. And then somewhere, one of my friends who's a scholar of Bonhoeffer came to me and said, Martin, this was like in 2000, said to me, you know, some of the old guard is getting pretty up there, getting really too old. They're not going to be around much longer. Those people who lived with Bonhoeffer, went to school under Bonhoeffer, who know Bonhoeffer personally, they're going to be dying off. And so I took that as a a call to arms. And I went out and I raised the money, went to Germany, spent about three weeks in Germany, interviewed all the people that lived in the circle of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, got to know them and got their support for the film, got all those interviews. And then sure enough, before I was able to raise the, the money to actually finish the film, a number of them had already passed away. And I was very grateful that I had gone out early and gotten those interviews with those people. So it's, you know, it's, it's just a matter sometimes of making the decision. And then once you go, you, you realize, you look back and you think, well, why didn't I do this earlier? Well, speaking of gratitude and appreciation, I have immense amounts of both for you and your team for making this movie and putting it out. We didn't talk about other movies in this conversation that you and I talked about when we weren't recording, but 
these are other important movies, and I hope to have you have you back to talk about them. I would love to do it. First of all, I, I admire what you're doing. I think it's important. I think the the commitment that you've made personally makes the the conversation. The words are backed up by the actions that you you engage in, and so that's that's something that I think is a wonderful model. I'd love to come back, Josh, and talk about this film on Sabbath. It just got released to national PBS, national public television, and talk about uh, a film that wants to really hone in on the notion of responsibility uh, for care of the earth and how that all spirals out of the notion of Sabbath, I think would be, uh, I hope, might be of interest to your audience. Yeah, and I'll also mention that that's also on YouTube, and so people can watch it. So I'll put that link in as well, and I've watched it too. And I'm, how do I say it, like holding myself back from talking about it? (laughs) just because we'll have to put that on a later conversation, as well as on your movie, which I've not yet watched, on Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, and we you know, we also have done a series, just recently done a series of additional biographical films on one of the great, you know, some of the great religious figures of the 20th century, Abraham Joshua Heschel. I'm not sure how much you know about Abraham Heschel. Dorothy Day. I confess that I don't. Uh, Dorothy Day, who was the great Catholic social activist, Reinhold Niebuhr, Howard Thurman. These were seminal figures in the 20th century. I think they they were of their tr- religious traditions, but in some ways outside far enough so they could call their religious tradition to a better place. And if you get a chance to take a look at those, they're, you, know, they're, you can get all that information on our website too. But I just gave a talk last night on Abraham Joshua Heschel. I think he was the greatest Jewish thinker of the 20th century. So, Well, for all of these works, and especially... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Doblemeyer, thank you very much. It's my honor, Josh. Thank you so much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.